Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the sound of protest. The time has come to speak up and sing out. I'm anticipating that this is going to be a series, so beyond just the sound of protest, we might be talking about sounds of resistance, opposition, disorder, dissent, even, if I get there, sustainability. But unlike other series that I've done in the past, where it may just pop up from time to time, your points and questions would be one example, wonders would be another, this isn't going to be like that. I mean, it may sound a bit like a Wonders episode, truth be known, but it may come in a series altogether, all at one time, because I feel like the time has come to say a few things and to re-empower in us the language of protest. 
I had intended, and I still may before I get done with what could be a five or six episode series, look at these things from the perspective of the music that speaks to me when it comes to speaking up and speaking out. How does that lay out over the decades? And I think we probably have a cliche in our minds that a lot of the so-called protest music is from the 1960s. I'm quite sure that's not going to be the case, that I'll see things from 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. I'm not seeing a ton that I know of as being more current than that. But that speaks more to my musical taste than it does to whether the voice of the sound of protest has over the years died down. I will say, though, that this is a concern and that my approach comes from a place of legitimate concern. I do think that in many ways we are not as aware, not as engaged as we have been in the past. I think if you ask the average person on the street a true or false question, whether the United States of America is currently engaged in the longest ongoing worldwide military conflict in our history, or even just the longest war in our history, I wonder how many people would struggle to come up with the answer to that question or answer that true-false question incorrectly instead of doing as they should do, which would be looking at you like you're crazy and saying, of course, what a stupid question. We don't think of ourselves as a nation embroiled in a long, ongoing, never-ending, continuous war with no objectives for success that actually could be uh, called a smart goal, nothing specific, measurable, achievable, so forth and so on. Uh, so I think that that's one example of where we're in a place where, from, for whatever reason, our level of outrage, even though it might be higher now than it has been at any time in years, is still insufficient. It may be heightened now, but it's probably not heightened to the extent that it ought to be. And it certainly was not heightened a year ago to the extent that it should have been a year ago. So in typical inappropriate conversations fashion, this will be all over the map. I do not have a specific bias or bent when it comes to political worldview. I am truly ecumenical from a religious perspective. I take things uh, very open-mindedly, I guess is the way I would put it. And therefore, no one's going to be able to trace the songs and necessarily predict whether the political outlook embedded in a song is going to be, well, predictably Greg. That's not what I'm shooting for. I think it also, probably, though, is predictable that this is going to be all over the map in terms of music genre. And I think that probably there's a underlying level of anger that should bubble its way up. And we heard that in the opener, The Rainmakers, Reckoning Day. The Rainmakers will play us in today and play us out. And for, to be honest with you, considered Bob Walkenhorst, the principal writer of a lot of these songs, considered him as a different drummer. Wouldn't be shocked if it happens in the future, but I've got eh, maybe bigger fish to fry when it comes to different drummers along the way here. But there's another problem. I went to my MP3 player, which carries, call it 16 or 17,000 songs, and just went through every single song on the player. Made a playlist out of the things which I thought arguably were protest songs. And from those protest songs, I considered whether or not, well, was it something I would play in a playlist? Would I listen to it walking down the street? And does it tell the story that I want to tell about how we ought to be reacting to the things which have gone wrong in our society, culture, and world right now? And 350 is the approximate number of tracks I stuck on that playlist. Well, that is still uh, much too big to share. It's one of those ironic combinations of being a number that's obviously not small. It's probably less than 2.5% of the songs on my MP3 player qualify for this protest and resistance kind of concept. But there's no way I'm going to do a series that touches on anywhere near all of them. 
So I went through kind of a mental process and said, well, which one of these makes sense from an inappropriate conversations perspective? If I look at thoughts I've shared in the past about memorial music for my father, for example, uh, which one of these things would be the, would make that cut, I guess would be the way I'd word it. And I pulled the list down under maybe 150, but not far under 150 and said, yeah, I still have too much. So I just thought, well, if I just try to organize and codify them a little bit, that will weed things out. And it did. But the other thing that revealed to me was that there's going to be some songs where I need to just talk about them and not really uh, hear them. It needs to be spoken about rather than listened to. So there'll be points along the way in each one of these weeks where I stop and just talk about something. And I'll try to give a heads up so that people don't get any hopes up or fears up that, uh, that it's not going to get played. It'll simply be discussed. So I kind of went through that. And the other thing I did was, in the process of trying to organize these into manageable chunks, I did group them together. So, no doubt about it. Talking week after week about the sounds of protest is going to have insider an inherent repetition. There's just no way around it. But I did try to make areas of focus. So if I do hit this five or six times, each one's got a theme. And to be honest... Within each one of the themes, there might be sub-themes as well. And I'm not even really just referring there to the different drummer. Today, I want to focus on politics. I do feel like politics is one of the areas where our relative degree of disengagement in recent years is putting us under the greatest amount of threat. But it's hard to talk about protest as a concept without politics creeping in along the way. So, again, my effort to isolate and to create topics... It is not necessarily going to mean that you won't hear a theme repeated or recur. Next time I, I might talk about war, for example. And if, if I do that, it's hard to separate those two, especially looking back at the perspective of music in the 1960s and early 70s at the time of the Vietnam War. Politics and uh, the politics of war were wrapped up together pretty tightly. There'll be other things. I want to look at minority issues. I want to look at religion as a concept. If I succeed and get all the way there, we'll talk a little bit about the environment and protest music focused on specifically on the environment. So that's the idea. So there will be themes week in and week out. But more importantly, there will be music. And there will also be references to and callbacks to different drummers. I might as well start there. With a surprising stew of music, it wouldn't shock me if a lot of people who know me have not heard. Things on my MP3 player, in some cases, that people would never guess are actually there. So let me begin with a quick series focused on the voice and, in some degree, the ideas of Jello Biafra. Jello Biafra of the Dead Kennedys. I can't do protest music without talking about the Dead Kennedys. But he was a different drummer in the first couple of months of this show, going all the way back to 2010. I referred to him in one of the, verse, the first politics-focused episodes I did. He was a different drummer for one of those. And later referred to him back when talking about trying to understand the shifts in our culture across decades. And even later, talking about Ralph Nader and, to some degree, uh, the unfair sort of stigma we've got around third parties where we lay perhaps a little bit too much blame for our own apathy, if you're a Republican or a Democrat at the feet of a third party, talked about Biafra there. And one of the first things I did was say, there's a band on my MP3 player called The Offspring, not the world's greatest fan, but I do love a few things that they've done along the way. And one of the best things I think they've ever done is partner with Jello Biafra for a disclaimer. 
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the disclaimer. That's right, the disclaimer. This American apple pie institution known as parental discretion will cleanse any sense of innuendo or sarcasm from the lyrics which might actually make you think and will also insult your intelligence at the same time. So protect your family. This album contains explicit depictions of things which are real. These real things are commonly known as life. So if it sounds sarcastic, don't take it seriously. If it sounds dangerous, do not try this at home or at all. And if it offends you, just don't listen to it.
for what is really the issue. And then behind that all lies a very personal human feeling that I don't think old men ought to promote wars for young men to fight. Side of Littleton, 11 million children are unriddling. That's why I don't mind for the sake of rhetoric. False media, we don't need to do it. Killed, enslaved, Indian, Mexican. It looks real fucked up for your Mexican. That's why I don't mind for the sake of rhetoric. If I can't work to make it, I'll rob and take it. Either that or me and my children are starving and naked. Rather be a criminal pro than a follow the matrix. Hey, it's me, a monster, y'all the creator. I've been inaugurated. Keep the bright lights out of our faces. You can't shake it, it ain't a way to swallow the hatred. Ain't fire, holler about a dollar, nothing to sacred. We gon' pimp the shit out of nature. Send our troops to get my paper. Tell them stay away from them skyscrapers. Ain't long for you get y'all acres. I'm a strong mood, a global gangster. Since me the four more years. I'ma make you feel a little bit safer Because it ain't over See, that's how we get your fear to control you But ain't nobody under more control than a soldier And how could you expect a kid to keep his composure When all sorts of thoughts for a full exposure America's lost somewhere inside of Littleton 11 million children are unriddling That's why I don't rhyme for the sake of riddling False media don't need it, do we? Killed, enslaved, engine Mexican. It looks real fucked up for your Mexican. That's why I don't rhyme for the sake of riddling. False media, we don't need it, do we? America's lost somewhere inside of Littleton. 11 million children are unriddling. That's why I don't rhyme for the sake of riddling. False media, we don't need it, do we? Killed, enslaved, engine Mexican. the protest music would come with a musical journey, and here we are. That was The Offspring, Disclaimer, Sepultura, Politrix, with the common denominator being the voice of Jello Biafra, followed by The Roots and False Media, from what I think is perhaps the most political of their albums, Game Theory. And a few better topics to talk about right now than false media, alternative facts, false truths, lying. We have an attorney general guilty of perjury who is sitting in his office, and a a country that seems indifferent to that. They don't see the problem. We've attempted to impeach a president for much less ambitious forms of lying under oath, something way more benign than lying in order to get a position of almost absolute political power and just saying, yeah, you can lie under oath to get that position, to get the votes you need, and, and we're okay with that because on some level we understand political ambition. It's a bit like the Pauline Kael article, uh, Zeitgeist and Poltergeist, where she was talking about movies and movies from almost a macro perspective. And at one point in that long essay of hers, my favorite part of the essay, she's describing a moment when a couple is in a movie theater in presumably the 1960s watching the film version of The Haunting, 
the Robert Wise movie, the adaptation of the book, and the couple sitting near her were audibly arguing with each other. The husband wanted to leave the movie theater because he came to see a scary movie and this wasn't scary. He hasn't seen a ghost yet. And the wife's saying, oh, settle down, honey. It'll happen. It'll happen. And both of them were in the wrong movie, is the honest assessment of it. They'd gone looking for something that they weren't going to find because they were only ready to react from a scary movie perspective to things that were schlocky, preconditioned, telegraphed. And if anything more complex than that happened, they were surely going to miss it. The band Rush might have been prominent, could have been even the most prominent band in the series that I'm going to be doing. And it probably makes sense here to kind of call out that, although generally speaking, if I hit a band, they're not likely to come back in one of the other topics that we're going to hit. Usually, if a group is good at political protest, that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to pop up when dealing with uh, the uh, struggle of minorities. But obviously with rap, that's going to be a little bit different. Those two things intertwine much more directly with rap. And Rush, I think I could have at least put them in a general category. They could have been repeated, but I think I made a decision somewhere along the way not to include the music of Rush at all, which is interesting because lyrically they're very strong in this area. And as I mentioned, Jello Biafra is a previous different drummer. Well, so is the uh, drummer and lyricist for Rush, Neil Peart. So... It's not like I couldn't go there, but instead, this is the first example I'll use of a band that I want to honor, recognize, and represent in the concept of, of the music of protest and resistance, more by speaking about them than listening to them. First, perhaps a quick shout out. Neil got his nod in July of 2011, Inappropriate Conversation 62, where the primary topic then was uh, capital punishment. Angela Biafra was the different drummer in Inappropriate Conversations 6, Radical Moderates. That was April 2010. Now, I was looking through and a couple things hit me. One was a surprise. I'll get to it later in this, in this episode of Inappropriate Conversations. Talking about the band that I probably did not expect to not just appear so many times, a handful of times in the series that I finally culled down and organized, but is going to appear in multiple different topics as well. We'll get to that group in a minute. It also features a former different drummer. Rush, I think, I just kind of tried to consolidate most of what I wanted to say. Uh, right here at the beginning, under the topic of politics, would have worked on a more general topic as well. But I can remember the first day that I listened to Rush. I may have heard a few songs on the radio, probably was aware of who they were, but the first time that I was actually in a room with a friend, with a turntable, with a vinyl record, and put the record on the player, turned up the speakers, and said, okay, we are intentionally listening to Rush. And for me, the first time that happened was their initial live album, All the World's a Stage. This coming out after they'd only put out maybe four previous records. The tour being recorded for the All the World's a Stage performance was the 2112 tour. And if that's a hint, yeah, we're going to go there. And there'd been three albums prior to that. And to be honest with you, as somebody who at the time was dabbling with drums... Most of the reason I was trying to listen to Rush was to listen. It was less about the lyrics, perhaps, initially, and more really about trying to dive into what the drummer was doing and how the drummer was doing it. And of course, being somebody who enjoys writing, the fact that this drummer was also a lyricist was just all bonus. It was all gravy. But the very first song on that live album is Bastille Day. And there's just absolutely no doubt that when you're talking about Bastille Day as a topic, Bastille Day as a song, you've got people rising up, 
and overthrowing a corrupt government that is uh, ignorant and uh, willfully dismissive of the plight of its people, uh, the uh, the let them eat cake statement being shoved right back into the face of the royalty there. And it's a song that doesn't pull any punches, referring to heads rolling in a basket, for example. And the other, I brought the All the World's a Stage album. It had been one of my first rock and roll purchases uh, using birthday money that my grandmother gave me that I finally got around to spending on Halloween weekend of that year. Uh, sophomore year in high school, freshman in high school, very young, right? My friend, uh, we were over at his place listening to the music on his turntable. What he brought to the party was A Farewell to Kings. And the title track of A Farewell to Kings is another one of these uh, same kind of maybe historically focused protest songs saying, hey, what happens if you don't govern well? You can't guarantee that failing to govern well is going to serve you well as a leader. But really, the the purpose of the album that we were listening to the live album, was the tour for 2112. And 2112 is a suite. 20 minutes, a lot of protest and resistance concepts, a lot of consequences of protest are in there as well. Temple of Syrinx is the first one that comes to mind from that perspective of somebody uh, standing up to the political and religious authorities and demanding answers and thwarting their will. And on, call it the other side of the album, uh, Something for Nothing, is certainly a song that, that lyrically appeals to me. And I guess it's probably wrong to spend uh, time talking about Rush and emphasizing the lyrics and not to share any of them. I'll only share this one, just a little bit from Something for Nothing, to give you a sense that even songs that perhaps aren't famous as protest songs by a band who's famous for their anthems, uh, that there's, there's lyrical gold in those hills, even on what we might call secondary tracks. To me, this is a song that raises the question of whether laziness has a lot to do with why we don't have that protest mentality that I talked about at the opening. Here's some of the lyrics to Something for Nothing. Waiting for someone to call and turn your world around. Looking for an answer to the question you have found. Looking for an open door. You don't get something for nothing. You can't have freedom for free. You won't get wise with the sleep still in your eyes, no matter what your dreams might be. What you own is your own kingdom. What you do is your own, is your own glory. What you love is your own power. What you live is your own story. In your head is the answer. Let it guide you along. Let your heart be the anchor and the beat of your own song. You don't get something for nothing. You can't have freedom for free. There's Rush. The last one I want to mention from Rush, though, and it's interesting because I've had to deal with this as I was looking through the songs that I think mean the most to me and I have the most passion about. Some of them are almost anti-protest songs. Some of the ones I left out, in fact, were protests against protests, for example. Because I, I didn't apply a political litmus test. There are songs here that I might disagree with what they have to say. I did eliminate some just because I felt like I'd talked about them before. But generally speaking, this one, I just didn't know what to do with the song The Trees by Rush. I do think it's a, it is a protest song. But I also think that its warning is kind of ironic. I mean, most of us, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with Rush, The Trees... Give it another listen, and give it a listen, Spotify it, whatever, from the perspective of protest music, because really, it's a little bit, there's more depth and complexity here. It's talking on one level about the inevitability of the maples rising up and demanding their fair share of light from the oaks who block out the sun. It's a have and have not story, but it ends as a cautionary tale. The last line is, the trees are now kept equal by hatchet, axe, and saw. I'm not unsympathetic to the claims of people on the political right who say that you can't make everybody better 
by dragging some people down, that it ought to be about lifting people up. And that mentality makes sense until you peel back the onion a couple layers and realize that those same people are actually completely politically opposed to do anything that actually will help other people up. The logic of that thought process tends to regard the social safety net as a reason why the acrobats don't thrive. But I would say that from a performance art perspective, the safety net is the only reason that an acrobat actually reaches the heights of the highest artistry of their craft. That just because there's a net there doesn't mean the person's not going to keep trying to swing the trapeze. They're not going to lay, stare at the, the ceiling in the big top, and call themselves an outstanding, you know, trapeze artist or acrobat. The, the net is there for a reason. It's there to be used for very short periods of time. I understand that as a political moderate. I worry that many of my friends don't. I think one of the examples that I think I like the best is a picture of the difference between justice and equality or equity and equality. Equality is giving all three people the same box so that they can look over a fence and watch a ball game. But if the people are not the same height as one another, that box being exactly the same height means that maybe two of the three people are just staring at the fence or trying to squint through a, a knot, a hole in that fence, that wooden fence. Because only one person, through this uh, notion of equality, is lifted up high enough to actually see the game being played. And the initial answer that was presented in that cartoon was someone who came along and said, well, there ought to be three size boxes. The, the notion of equality isn't how much support do we provide. The notion of equality is that everybody should have their head just high enough to look over that fence. Therefore, the shortest person has the tallest box, and the tallest person may not need a box at all. And that becomes this notion of, of equity rather than a purely uh, a wooden notion of equality. But then the best answer of all, and the one that appeals to me in this idea of talking about the power of protest, was someone who came along and said, hey, why don't we just replace that wooden fence with a chain-link fence? that everybody, regardless of their height, can see through. And it's those kind of third ideas, those third-way notions that we need to be embracing, that we're not hearing often enough, that you unfortunately are seeing getting ridiculed and attacked from time to time by the media and even within church circles. And if we don't address this, if we can't make this better, this voice of protest, this rumbling, could turn into something that is going to take us ditch to ditch in a way that none of us want. I'm calling for resistance. I'm not calling for revolution. But when I think of the phrase revolution calling, I can't help but to think about the band Queensryche.
Can you find my words on a dusty shelf? 
to us in a language that everybody here can easily understand.
People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Like the bye-bye bird Let the rest through 
a lot going on there. I'll recap it quickly because the uh, songs are continuing the story that I'm trying to tell. The audio clips that I shared are careening us toward our different drummer, and those things are about to collide in the very near future. I started off that series with Queensryche, Revolution Calling. To me, their signature anthem, certainly the musical and lyrical high point of Operation Mindcrime, which I've had the pleasure and benefit of having seen perform live. Not just catching Queensryche in concert playing greatest hits, but I caught Queensryche in concert on the Empire Tour, second leg of that tour, where they chose to play Operation Mindcrime end-to-end with a multimedia presentation as sort of the centerpiece of it. But to give you a sense of sort of the apathy, <laughs> and another example of it, that Queensryche was a popular band. They had come out with uh, Empire, Silent Lucidity had become a single, got in, getting a lot of radio play. The kind of song that was capable of getting radio play on multiple levels of spectrum. I mean, it was a soft enough um, song appealing to both kids and adults that it could be played on an adult contemporary rock station or an album-oriented rock station. And Queensryche probably had enough credibility to be played on hard rock stations. This wasn't the first single from that album, either. That Empire album had uh, radio play for the title track and for the song Best I Can. My favorite of all the songs on that album was actually Is There Anybody Listening? But when they came in concert and performing songs from the album that came out before it, that did get a fair amount of, of rock radio play, album-oriented rock radio play, I was standing in a crowd of people that it was clear that in this audience, they'd come to hear the band play Silent Lucidity. The group could have come out in concert, said hello to the crowd, played two songs nobody knew, played Silent Lucidity, left, and at least 15, 20% of the people who were in the audience that day would have left right then and said it was a great show. Best 15 minutes they'd seen in concert all year. Which is outrageous, right? No, I said the band was doing something kind of cool for their fans and taking collectively... The audience was so ignorant that at one point the lead singer was doing that revolution calling, revolution calling, hold, uh, stopping his singing, holding the microphone out in the direction of the audience so that they could sing loud and along. And I was probably the only person who's, who yelled the word calling at that moment. It's as if this uh, concert hall full of purportedly Queensryche fans uh, had no idea what the lyrics to some of their more, their more popular songs were. It was disappointing. Or maybe they just didn't understand the words. Because the uh, clips that I've shared along the way, uh, kind of stitching this series together, meaning of words, afraid of governments, those concepts come to us from V for Vendetta. And I actually was planning on focusing elsewhere for this first uh, Inappropriate Conversations sound of protest, sound of resistance idea. I was going to put resistance first, but I just couldn't because it just seemed to me like V for Vendetta is in some ways all too perfect as the voice of the situation that we're in right now, the warning we need to be listening to, uh, the answer to the question of whether it's appropriate to rise up and protest, and what might happen if you wait too long. If you can't be heard now in this situation, then getting heard later might require something far more, well, it might, ref- it might require a form of communication that's a touch too ro- robust for my taste, maybe too robust for a lot of our tastes. That said included Ken Hensley and what I consider the the title track of Proud Words on a Dusty Shelf. Hensley came up with a couple of solo albums. He's done more since, but a couple of solo albums in the middle of the 1970s as kind of the everyman performer for Uriah Heep. When I think of the group Uriah Heep, unfortunately, maybe, they're a band that, unlike 
you know, Led Zeppelin and a few others where you can name all the members of the group. I think for most of us, Uriah Heep is probably a, a generic anonymous group of British rockers that uh, no one of them actually rose up and stood out to become a name on his own, right? Uh, Richie Blackmore rising out of Deep Purple and you know, forming Rainbow and other sort of things. And no matter what you may think of Richie Blackmore, there's no doubt that he is the, the dominant face of Rainbow. And, and from Led Zeppelin, um, Page and Plant, you know, that sort of thing. So the uh, to me, the everyman in Led Zeppelin is John Paul Jones, uh, playing bass, playing keyboard, capable of playing guitar, doing some arranging. And that same role was being played in Uriah Heep by Ken Hensley, who on his solo albums brought himself to the front as a frontman in a way that only occasionally happened in the context of the group Uriah Heep. My favorite of all of his solo albums is still one of those very early ones, Proud Words on a Dusty Shelf. And it's a fascinating album for anybody who cares about rock music. It includes what must be described as a country song called The Last Time. It has his reinterpretation of a Uriah Heep song, a ballad called Rain. And this title track, it's filled with not just great rock songs, but a variety of great rock songs. And Proud Words on a Dusty Shelf strikes me as the one closest to protest. For a lot of us, me included, Surely the first time any of us heard of Living Color or had any idea there was a group called Living Color was Cult of Personality. Won't spend a lot of time talking about my experience with the song or even its lyrical content. I think in many ways it speaks for itself. And one of the problems is people have elected an idea, maybe then actually a person, certainly clearly based on where we stand right now in American political history, we certainly haven't elected a leader. It's more of an idea. It's a cult of personality. And we ended that set with Megadeth, Symphony of Destruction. In almost all cases except Megadeth, um, these were all songs that are not just sitting in my uh, MP3, my Zune, my phone on MP3 format, but they're also downstairs on CD. Some of them are both on CD and on album. This is music that over the years I've accumulated and where necessary reaccumulated. And of the call it a hundred songs I want us to talk about this summer in a sound of protest, sound of resistance theme that we're going to work through. The only one I had to reacquire was Megadeth, Symphony of Destruction. And I don't know what that means. Am I reacquiring it because one of my kids have this CD, and when they went off to set up their own homes or to go to college, it went with them? Have I just misplaced it? Yeah, I don't know. But it was the only one of all these that needed to be reacquired. Because for the most part, these are songs which I've pulled not necessarily as the best of the best, in a pure sense for my MP3 player, but in the concept of protest and resistance, they simply did earn their way down through a process of weeding out to be named the best of the best. And in future of these episodes, don't be surprised if the different drummer is a musician. For this one, though, the different drummer is going to be an actor, and I'm going to let the band Dead Kennedys play us in and play us out, because I've already given the appropriate nod to Jello Biafra, the very beginning of Inappropriate Conversations as a different drummer. Don't need to name him again, but his attitude toward government and his calling for us to look at government in a different way, pretty consistent with the V for Vendetta mentality. And in trying to figure out how do I work V for Vendetta as a film into one of these music-focused episodes, how to point to V for Vendetta and say, that's a graphic novel you should read, that's a movie you should see, it's an actor I'm going to recognize as the different drummer, Hugo Weaving. Thank you. 
Governor Jerry Brown. My heart smiles and never frowns. Soon I will be president. Time of power will soon go away. I will be scared one day. I will command all of you. Your kids are meditating in school. Your kids are meditating in school. California, Morales. California, has been true on all inappropriate conversations shows that use this format i'm replacing intro music and different drummer music with the music that is part of the dna of the show itself in other words this is not going to be an inappropriate conversation set of weeks maybe even a couple of months where kevin mcleod gets to play a role and to me that's a little bit disappointing i I know when i do this i do it for reason and i like the reason i'm okay with it but I get a little bit disappointed when I have to go too long without the theme song for inappropriate conversations playing in my ears as an editor. And my own personal page on Facebook I've been doing for a couple of years now, something I call First Track. It's looking at a group or an artist that appears more than one time on my MP3 player and asking myself, what led this to occur? How did that person get on my MP3 player more than once? What led me to hear that artist and say, I'm going to get more of that music. And Kevin McLeod just recently got his nod from me from a first track perspective. Obviously, I've got more than one track from him on my MP3 player because I use the tracks as different drummer intro and outro, uh, the theme to Walk the Earth as a podcast, which I, I do hope we'll see again once I get through this 
protest period this summer, this year. But also the theme to Inappropriate Conversations, which is the one I named as my first track. Uh, was pointed in his direction as a good resource for a variety of music and a variety of music with percussion and drum in it because different drummer segments call for, well, different drummer music. But the one I fell in love with was the one I'm using as the theme to Inappropriate Conversations, or I will again use as that theme. I played us into this segment with Dead Kennedys, California Uber Alice, and not to uh, give too much of a hint, we'll play ourselves out with virtually the same song. In consecutive albums, Dead Kennedys recorded one scathing criticism of liberal California Governor Jerry Brown and um, whether or not a government that has that kind of power over its people can be trusted to do the right thing, whether the person sitting in power is quote-unquote a lefty or a righty. And he made good on the bookend there. It was just an album later that Dead Kennedys recorded, We've Got a Bigger Problem Now, using some of the same musical constructs, some of the same lyrics, this time criticizing President and former California Governor Ronald Reagan. So two songs with very similar lyrical themes, looking at California governors who could not be more different from each other, and leveling essentially the same complaint against totalitarianism. But that's not our different drummer. That's just the intro and outro. Our different drummer is actor Hugo Weaving. And I don't really have much of a context for Hugo Weaving as an actor, that falls outside of the realm of what we might consider to be these kinds of protest, or certainly movies and characters where there's an underlying political bent. I could honestly say that if you take out a couple of series of films, you leave out The Matrix, you leave out the Lord of the Rings series, along with the Hobbit series that came well later, but the original uh, storyline, and V for Vendetta, I don't see weaving all that often. He's not an actor that I necessarily chance across. This means that uh, first time I probably saw him on screen and said to myself, I've seen this guy before, but I don't know who he is. Who is that? I want to know who this actor is, was in The Matrix. His performance of Agent Smith uh, in 1999, recurring every couple of years after that through the uh, the subsequent um, subpar, in my opinion, sequels. And in the midst of The Matrix series, 2001, he appeared on screen, and this time in the heroic figure, but somewhat ironically heroic figure as the uh, the leader of the elves, Elrond, and appeared then in two sequels after that. The last of those sequels, 2003, it was again a couple of years later, he reappeared as V in V for Vendetta. And once again, because it was a, as much a voice acting role as anything else, didn't necessarily recognize him. I guess if you line him up, Side by side, the V mask, obviously, that's a little harder, but the Elrond character and the Agent Smith character side by side, you can understand being a little bit fooled that this isn't obviously the same actor. If you say, hey, that's the same actor, it's kind of clear, but it's not obviously the same actor. What I find interesting is in all these roles, the part that I think, the weapon I think is an actor that, that Weaving weaves most powerfully into his performances is his voice. And maybe there's no better example of that than The Matrix. I know my rights. I want my phone call. Tell me, Mr. Anderson, what good is a phone call if you're unable to speak? This is a menacing character in Agent Smith. Calm, collected, capable of violence. But even when performing acts of violence, doing it, I guess, somewhat stoically, you might say. So the menace comes in him through the words and through the tone of his voice. And even that, through the somewhat monotone nature of the tone of his voice. 
he brings some of those same skills to the dialogue that he speaks in V for Vendetta. And again, without exception, speaking that dialogue without the ability to use facial expression as any kind of a cue for the audience watching his performance. V for Vendetta is perhaps an example of a performance that I would not have minded seeing given end-of-year acting accolades for an actor who was, by and large, completely concealed throughout the performance that he rendered. Now, Weaving is the voice that I'm going to use throughout this episode in letting the V for Vendetta you know, character and uh, the characters interacting with that V character kind of speak their mind about what might happen if we yield too much power to government because we allow demagogues to convince us that we ought to be afraid of things and we lose track of kind of who we are as a country and the principles that guided us at the moment of our formation and we are there we are at that risk and that is the reason why it is time to speak up and it is time to protest strikes me as a little bit unfair to speak about weaving as a different drummer and to do so only in the context of a handful or less of his characters. So let me offer just a little bit of biographical material, the kind of things that you can find at IMDb or Wikipedia or Rotten Tomatoes. Hugo Weaving is a Nigerian-born, English-Australian film and stage actor, best known for playing Agent Smith in the Matrix trilogy, Elrond in the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit film trilogies, V in V for Vendetta, Red Skull and Captain America, The First Adventure, and recently Tom Doss in Hacksaw Ridge. His path took him from Nigeria to England to Australia. In Australia, he went to acting school, uh, graduating from there. Let me see if I got the reference for that. The National Institute of Dramatic Art, a college well-known for other alumni such as Mel Gibson and Jeffrey Rush. This would have been in Sydney, Australia. That was in 1981. Since then, Hugo has had a steadily successful career in film, television, and theater industries. What's interesting to me is that I've got a gap with him, despite naming him as a different drummer, in things which are important that I haven't seen. He's won numerous awards, including two Australian Film Institute Awards for Best Actor in a Leading Role, and three total nominations. The AFI is the Australian equivalent of the Academy Award. And he uh, won for his performance in Proof, 1991, The Interview, in 1998, and he was also nominated for his 1994 role in The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. I imagine that there's a lot of people that I know who are part of the audience of Inappropriate Conversations who might be either surprised or disappointed or both in some combination that I haven't seen either the interview and particularly Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. just hasn't happened yet. Rotten Tomatoes has a feature at the bottom of their section before they get to the film, the filmography of an artist, if it's an actor page, but they talk about that actor's highest rated movies. And this I find to be the most interesting because half of them I haven't seen before, and one of them at least I wasn't aware that Weaving as a voice actor uh, played a role. The highest rated movies according to Rotten Tomatoes featuring Hugo Weaving. Ship of Theseus on 100% rating. The Interview a 100% rating. Babe, a 97% rating, and The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, with a 96% rating. That's an interesting resume. To me, the most important of Weaving's films is V for Vendetta, not cited. And this may be just a bias on my part, but of the three Lord of the Rings movies, The Two Towers, cited here as his highest Rotten Tomatoes rating among the six or so things he's done in the context of The Lord of the Rings, they rate that one the highest. I rate it probably the lowest. But then I've always got a bias against the middle films in trilogies. 
even when I, I think it's probably a great film and one of the best of its kind in The Empire Strikes Back, I secretly like Star Wars, the 1977 original called A New Hope, better. Again, I think I've got a bias against the middle films and trilogies. Perhaps a different topic for a different day. Instead, let me wrap up the uh, different drummer segment here. Play us out with the Dead Kennedys with reminding myself that you know, whether or not there's some minutiae, difference of opinion about the most important work of an actor, uh, whether uh, I've got the right context for how I'm reading how you could overlay V for Vendetta against the things that we're seeing and experiencing right now, all of that is probably relatively unimportant to the things that we're that are facing us that needed need to be resisted, need to be protested. It's fair to say we've got a bigger problem now. Lock your doors 
So I covered that in a series. Um, Dead Kennedys, We've Got a Bigger Problem Now for In God We Trust Incorporated was the name of the EP that came out on. Followed that by another clip, Hoped to Do, is what the track is called on my MP3 player. And then XTC, The Ugly Underneath. An excellent example of a political protest song describing not just politicians, but what's wrong with politicians and what to do about them. And XTC is the band that I mentioned somewhat elliptically earlier as a group that is going to appear not in a ton of references, not in a string of songs put together, a rock block of XTC and the concept of resist and protest. No, but they're going to get sprinkled about through almost each one of the topics because even as I group topics together and said, now's the time to talk about this, we're talking about protest music in the context of religion. XTC's got a lot to say, but they've also got one of the best environmental songs out there. So we will hear more from XTC throughout these episodes, and it's probably good enough for now to note that uh, we're talking about, once again, a former different drummer. I mentioned Andy Partridge, the lead singer of more than half of XTC's songs, as the different drummer for uh, Inappropriate Conversations 29. 29 and 30 were a two-part series the first real solid two-parter, or maybe the second two-parter I did in that first year of the show, the focus was prayer in schools. And the first part came out in September. The second part came out in October. Right there sort of straddling that back-to-school time. In the year 2010, in Andy Partridge was my prayer for a high school football game or commencement, Inappropriate Conversations number 29. Now, this may seem counterintuitive to some, but protest music doesn't always have to be loud. It also doesn't always have to be lyrical. One of my favorite songs that I always think of in the context of protest is one of the ones that I think I've weeded out. It's one of the ones I'm not going to take the time to share or speak to, except to drop its name right now. It's Mansion by The Fall, the opening track to their album, This Nation's Saving Grace, which is an inherently sarcastic album, and therefore yeah, worth noting. Uh, an album I don't think I'm going to touch at all in this series, but is worth looking at. Again, worth Spotifying uh, for the band The Fall and their opening. It's a minute and a half long, but it's fantastic. And I, I hear those musical notes strung together, and it sounds to me like protest music. Well, sometimes when I hear the melody for Finlandia by Jean Sibelius, I don't think of that as protest music. Finlandia, in some ways, reminds me of the music of a hymn, because part of the song has been used as the melody to hymns throughout the years. And yet, the origin of the song is protest. And despite being a good, solid six, seven, eight minutes long, I think the right thing to do is to play the whole thing and then offer a few words about it. Here's Finlandia.
Here's what Wikipedia says about Finlandia, Opus 26. It's a tone poem by the Finnish composer Jean Sibelius. It was written in 1899 and revised in 1900. The piece was composed for the press celebrations of 1899, a covert protest against increasing censorship from the Russian Empire, and was the last of seven pieces performed as an accompaniment to the tableau depicting episodes from Finnish history. Premiered in 2nd of July, 1900 in Helsinki with the Helsinki Philharmonic Orchestra. And the performance typically takes between seven and a half and nine minutes. And again, anybody who's familiar with church music or hymns will recognize the last piece of that as being part of the music we hear of hymns, in, pa- in fact, more than one. So Finlandia, sort of a stealth, almost secret protest song, Partly because if you create something that is actually that musically beautiful, it gets just a little bit harder for people to justify banning it. Let me hit the end of this first one, this music of protest, with a series of favorites. I don't normally do this. I normally let the music surprise us, let it come and go. And there'll be a couple of other surprises along the way. But if I talk about boiling it down to maybe two or three protest songs that I feel the most strongly about, that when they play... I hear them in the context of protest, and I think of them that way for that reason. And in some cases, it's not necessarily obvious. Elvis Costello's Less Than Zero might sound more like a protest song if you understood the British press and British politics in the 1960s and 70s. I don't have the context. So for years and years, I listened to the song, knew that it was angry, knew that it was protesting something, didn't really know what it was. However, I've spoken about this before and shared some of the backstory before, just talking about Elvis Costello as a different drummer. It was a maybe a Christmas or two ago where I got to the concept of uh, Boxing Day. really wanted to talk about the day after Christmas that year and the process of trying to create some text, some context around Boxing Day as an idea. It occurred to me that Elvis Costello is a different drummer for his lyrics alone, to be honest with you. And Boxing Day is one of the lyrics and one of the song titles, actually, to a song that he wrote in a completely unrelated context. That was December 2014, and Inappropriate Conversations 156 was just called Boxing Day. It was there that I talk about the rest of this story. I also, talking about favorites and trying to finish up, at least for me, what I think is finishing up strong, I'm going to hit uh, Sheryl Crow, It's Hard to Make a Stand. If I remember and take the time after this set is over, talk a little bit about how I feel about that song lyrically. This set's also going to include Sonic Youth, Youth Against Fascism, and Devo. Enough said. Got the finest 
seem to got a thousand variations Every service with a smile They're gonna take a little break And they'll be back after a while Well, I hear the South America Is coming in the style Turn up the TV Go on your son will suspect Even your mother won't detect it So your father won't know Said it had an understanding with the law. He said it heard about a couple living in the USA. He said they traded in their baby for a Chevrolet. Let's talk about the future now. We put that past away.
The time has come for me to meet my maker and to repay him in kind for all that he's done. Help me when I baked my bread. Now all of you will help me eat it. I can see that you are very well fed. This indicates that you don't need it. Take all the leaders from around the world, put them together in a great big ring, televise it as the lowest show on earth, and let them fight like hell and see who's king. Gather up the pieces when the fight is done, and then you'll find out living really can be fun. Now, Devo. Don't necessarily think of Devo uh, in the context of political music. 
But to be honest with you, it's hard to find a hit by Devo that isn't speaking into the culture in one direction or another. But no, this uh, closing set to the first sound of protest, inappropriate conversations, was uh, including uh, the Afghan Whigs discussing voting and part of the Rock the Vote protest in the very early 1990s, uh, a movement urging people who were young to register to vote in time so that they could go to the polls and vote. And you know, depending on who you ask, from a historical perspective, that may or may not have been one of the factors leading to the Bill Clinton presidency. And of course, with V for Vendetta you know, being part of this episode throughout, ended with one of the ending lines from V for Vendetta. Time for me to meet my maker and repay him in kind. So that series I mentioned, Elvis Costello, Less Than Zero, Sonic Youth, Youth Against Fascism, Devo, Enough Said. The one I wanted to highlight in there was Sheryl Crow. It's hard to make a stand. And I can understand somebody looking at the music of Sheryl Crow and kind of coming up with a conclusion that she really isn't quote-unquote political. But I think in the context of being social and political, this one absolutely is. She's got a verse about how we ignore the homeless as non-existent, uh, the consequences of uh, clinic violence, and how ironically unpro-life so much of the pro-life movement can be, and even an, an argument about um, arguing about who is God. It's worth sharing the lyrics to this one. It's among my favorite, and certainly among the most political of all of Sheryl Crow's songs. Old James Dean Monroe hands out flowers at the shop and go. He hopes for money, but all he gets is fear. And the wind blows up his coat, and this he scribbles on a perfume note. If I'm not here, then you're not here. And he says, call me miscreation. I'm a walking celebration. And it's hard to make a stand. My friend, oh lordy, went to take care of her own body, and she got shot down in the road. She looked up before she went and said, this isn't really what I meant. And the Daily News said, two with one stone. And I say, hey there, Miss Creation, bring a flower. Time is wasting. It's hard to make a stand. We had loud guitars and big suspicions, great big guns and small ambitions, and we still argue over who is God. And I say, hey there, Miss Creation, bring a flower. Time is wasting. We all need a revelation, and it's hard to make a stand. Hello, I'm Greg, host of a podcast called Inappropriate Conversations, with a mission to break down the barriers that keep people separated and stop us talking about politics, sex, and religion, and other aspects of our culture. And I'm ready to draw a line in the sand. If I have to qualify by some standard to be Christian in the eyes of my fellow believers over issues of theocracy or our current conservative mindset, you might just find me on the other side of that line. But let me tell you something. This doesn't say anything about my theology. It doesn't say anything about my orthodoxy. What it says is something about the state of Christianity today. That I, by some strange standard, may fail to qualify because of ideas that I have that line up with Jesus. Things like what Jesus had to say about public school prayer, what he didn't have to say about homosexuality, and what he demonstrated through his actions about the use of hormonal birth control. If my point of view about these issues makes me not a Christian... Guess what? The term Christianity has become meaningless. You can find inappropriate conversations in iTunes in the news and politics section or at www.inappropriateconversations.org. Thanks for listening. Music by Kevin McLeod. 
some of those small ambitions are one of the reasons that I'm doing this particular inappropriate conversation. And by and large, doing it with uh, no uh, none of the traditional intro-outro music, with few, if any, clips from other podcasts or other types of promotions, and we're as much as possible letting these songs sing for themselves. We opened up with The Rainmakers off their 1999 album, The Good News and the Bad News, with a political protest song, pointing as many fingers in liberal directions as anywhere else, complaining about taxation, among other things. But protest isn't always directed elsewhere. Even political protest isn't always a finger pointing in the direction of government or elections or other voters. Sometimes the finger needs to be pointed in our own direction. And on that same album, The Good News and the Bad News, The Rainmakers, will finish us up today with a song that calls to question whether or not our strike-it-rich lottery mentality is the right focus, whether our focus should be elsewhere, in a song called Spend It on Love. Thanks for listening. himself to death in a couple of years should have spent it on love spent it on his children spent it on the ones who needed the most take your little bundle put her in a basket leave her on the doorstep of the future her home i hear of an army taking lots of money spending
This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.